You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Morning, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you all. Uh, Often I'm in with the little kids and the big kids, uh, which is great. I love it, but it is nice to have a change, isn't it? Sometimes be with the big kids in here. So, um, yeah, I'm Matty, uh, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit this morning about well, it's quite a personal journey, journey for me, basically. It started off with me around Christmas, delving into the Bible to find out what it said about healing, and that was for myself and for some friends and, and for some family, but it ended up being a bit of a wider thing, because um, God sometimes does that, and it ended up more about breakthrough and belief. Because uh, I guess I've had this increasing awareness of and increasing frustration at the gap between what seems to be available in the life of Jesus' followers, and specifically what we read about if you get into this book, and what I've been actually experiencing for a lot of my adult life. The Bible tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a baby to be with us. He lived uh, an unheralded but perfect life until he was about 30. And then he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came on him. And for the next three years, he traveled around doing remarkable things and preaching a message. And we read in Mark 1, verse 14 and 15, this. After John was put in prison... Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, which was the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. We talk about that kingdom of God phrase quite a lot in the vineyard. If you stick around, you're going to hear it a lot. Uh, That Jesus has begun something that is ultimately only going to be completed when he returns. He healed people. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. He sought out the marginalized and the hurting and the ostracized. He challenged the abuse of power. He taught about loving not just our friends, but our enemies. He taught about sacrificial love for others. He brought hope. Basically, everywhere Jesus went, he painted a picture and he left a fragrance of what life is like when God's will begins to invade our everyday lives. And then he handed on the baton to his followers, which is a lot of us in here. So in Acts, uh, the book that tells us all about how the early Christians got on, it's exciting stuff. God, the the Holy Spirit comes and fills them up. Peter preaches his first ever sermon and 3,000 people become Christians there and then, which is like mega fruit for one message. He must have, he probably never had it that good again. He peaked early. Uh, And in Acts 3, in a story that we'll come back to, Peter and John are, are asked by a beggar who's been lame and never walked in his entire life for some money. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And this man who has never, ever walked a step in his life gets up. And if you read Acts, it just goes on and on and on. It is remarkable. That's our history. That's what this thing called Christianity was. That's what it is. That's how it started with Jesus telling those first followers, you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit like I am, and you'll bring the kingdom like I do. It won't come fully until I return, but it has started, and it's coming now. And the thing is, I've basically just gotten pretty bored and disillusioned with the fact that a lot of my experience doesn't marry up very well with what I read about in the Bible and what I know is available. When I was doing my study over the Christmas period, there's a passage that, that really gripped me, and it's Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. So if you've got your Bibles, feel free to open it then, or get your phone out, or whatever, whatever you prefer. So Mark 6, verses 1 to 6. 
Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They ask, what's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, uh, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town. And this bit just cut me. I've read it before. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. What's going on here? Jesus goes home and he begins to teach and they're all amazed, which is basically nothing new because that happens pretty much everywhere Jesus goes. Someone's going to be amazed. He's pretty amazing. But their initial reaction doesn't hold. They get offended and the passage says he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few people and make them well. Which kind of still sounds like a miracle. I guess they said the first thing for, for like, oomph, for emphasis. And, and that sentence really has just been burnt on my mind. What was it about these people, the people who actually were meant to know Jesus best, he grew up there, that meant that Jesus, the Jesus, could not do any miracles there? Because whatever it is, I really don't want to be like that. I really want to be the exact opposite, but the description actually does feel uncomfortably close to home. Jesus does some stuff there, and, and I've seen some stuff, just not a lot. I remember in this room uh, on a Sunday morning, pre-COVID, uh, a guy called Nick came up for prayer, so I came down to pray for him. And uh, he explained that he'd torn about four years previously, he'd torn his MCL, which is tendon, I think, in the back of your knee, someone who knows medical stuff or no more than me. Uh, but basically, ever since, he'd had a lot of pain if he stood too long, sat too long, or walked too far, which is um, basically a lot of your life. Uh, it had never healed properly, properly. So I've got to be honest, I was a bit not that chuffed that it was a serious one. You know, it's like, oh, couldn't he just have felt sad? But no, he had an MCL problem. So... Um, but you know what, you go up to, to pray, you've got to actually pray, don't you? So I got down on my knee and I put my hand on, I was like, Lord Jesus, would you, you know, take away the pain and repair the, whatever the MCL is. And he burst into tears. I don't know, what do you do with that? So I, I was like, Nick, what, what's going on? And he said, the pain's gone. Really? I mean, I knew it could happen, but I honestly didn't expect that it would happen. He started testing it, walking around, jogging around, and, and yeah, really, it was, it was better. But then my next thought was, well, it could be placebo, right? I mean, this, he might just think it's well, and actually, he's doing more damage in this moment of just emotion, and actually, it's going to be worse. That's faith, eh? And so later in the week, I called him a bit nervous. I was like, Nick, how's the... Yeah, a bit of small talk, and then, Nick, how's the, how's the knee? Oh, amazing. Yeah, I thought, I thought so. And, um, and I checked again, actually... Years later, in the lead up to writing this talk, so I was like, oh, I don't want to preach anything that's wrong, but no, it is still absolutely fine. Thank God. Now, now there's absolutely nothing wrong with the fact that it, he checked it and you follow up with someone later. That's wise, because we do get emotional and placebo is a real thing. But guys, the fact that my first and second reactions were shock and then doubt, the fact that I don't have many stories like that, a few, but, but not lots, the fact that often I haven't even prayed, let alone believed, uh, 
for healing led me to conclude as I studied this passage that probably I've got a lot more in common with the people who knew Jesus so well in Nazareth than I'd like to admit. People who knew Jesus but didn't see him do that much. Our levels of experience are a little bit too similar for comfort. And, and Jesus can and always will do wonderful things wherever he's even the, the slightest bit welcome. And in fact, sometimes he will even where he's not welcome because he's just that good. But in Nazareth, there was so much potential left untapped that Mark can say he couldn't do any miracles there, which you've already said like isn't quite true. But, but the word translated miracle in the Greek is this word dynamis. And the main connotation is one of just power, ability. So other translations like the ESV choose to translate it as mighty works instead of miracles. So he couldn't do mighty works there. And, and what would God have done if their hearts had been different? I don't know. Didn't, didn't happen, did it? But Jesus was up to all sorts. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. And even some of the heart change that happened in people, like, like the, the, um, Mary the prostitute or, or Zacchaeus, some of the really hard cases of society were just deeply changed by encountering Jesus. That's pretty mighty work. But in Nazareth, it didn't happen. And, and it's not happening as often as I'd like it to in my life or in my small group or in the kids' stuff that we do next door. Or when we're praying here in church, it is happening. And in fact, I think there's been an increase. I really do. It's been quite exciting to be at church on Sundays recently. There's been things happening, but I just know that there's more. And if that resonates with you at all, then I think we can learn a thing or two from this passage. So I'm basically going to go through it by asking uh, and then answering the questions that I was asking myself as I was, as I was going through this passage. So the first one is, the first question I asked is, what on earth is it about these people of Nazareth that was holding Jesus back. Verse 5 and 6 says, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Apparently they had a little bit too little of something. Something called faith. In fact, they had so little that it amazed Jesus, which can't be that easy to do. Our faith, what we believe, really matters to God. Now, I know this isn't necessarily going to be an easy topic for some of us here. It's not for me. And I want to be clear, we cannot and we should not ever claim that faith is all that matters when it comes to talking about or experiencing the breakthrough of God's kingdom or healing. That is not true. But neither can we pretend that it's not important to God. Because this passage and so many others are clear that it is. What we believe matters to God. Let me just briefly turn to a couple of passages that then we'll come back to later. So if I uh, were to, was to go to Mark chapter 9, we read of Jesus' encounter with a desperate dad whose little boy is demon-possessed. And what that looks like is he, he's mute, hasn't spoken a word, and he often goes into seizures. And sometimes it threatens his life. And uh, Jesus' followers have already tried to do something about it, but they can't. And if we jump to verse 22, Jesus has just arrived and the dad is pleading with him. But if you can do anything, please take pity and help us. And Jesus' response, I just love, he says, if I can. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Belief, faith. You, you can almost hear the desperation in this poor father's voice as he replies, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. 
He's kind of saying, like, I do. I really want, I think I do. I'm not sure. Help. That is basically what he's saying. I, help. And Jesus does. And, and the little boy is instantly healed. And the other one I want to look at is, is um, the first miracle of the early church that I mentioned earlier on the story. Where Peter and John say to a beggar who's never walked, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he does. When everyone was asking in amazement how on earth they did it, I really enjoy their response. Acts 3, uh, Acts 3 verse 12. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Just think, because it's really surprising. What a stupid question. But anyway, um, why does this surprise you? Shouldn't say that about Peter, should you? But they were just people. Um, that's just what he said. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if our own power or godliness made this man walk? They go, go on to explain in verse 16, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see, uh, who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. They're basically just saying, we didn't do it. We just believed in Jesus' name. Faith is definitely not the only reason that God heals and does other wonderful things and breakthroughs in the Bible or today, but it's hard to get away from the fact that God really, really likes it. And he really wants us to have it. And there are, I guess, so much so that where it's completely missing, there are some things that simply won't happen. The second question I was asking myself is, okay, well, what is faith and why does it matter so much to God? Couldn't he just have, like, I don't know, done it another way, and then we wouldn't have to have long talks like this from me? Well, here's what it's not. It's not a thing. It's not like money that you can collect. It's not like, oh, well, you've only got 2.4, but you need 3.6 for that breakthrough. That's not how it works. Perhaps the part of the Bible that has most to say about it is chapters 10 and 11 of a book called Hebrews. So if you fancy it later, it's a great read. Uh, chapter 11, I often tear up a little bit. Um, but chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence. Assurance. Uh, you could say belief. Trust. Chapter 11 goes on to give this wonderful, inspiring list of people who had it. Biblical characters who've received promises from God that just didn't seem realistic, but they believed anyway. And the same refrain just keeps coming up. By faith, Abraham and Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. They were all trusting and believing God for completely different things, but they were doing the same thing. So for Abraham and Sarah, it was a son. They really wanted a son, even though Sarah was way too old to have one. For Moses, it was that his entire nation would be flee, freed from slavery, which is like a bigger thing than anything I've yet asked for. If we jump forward to the man uh, who we just read about earlier on, who brought his little boy before Jesus, it was that his son would finally be well. Circumstances vary, but faith in its essence is the same every time. Because in each case, faith or confidence or belief, whatever you like best, is all about him and what we believe about him and what he can do. How much confidence do we have in his goodness and his faithfulness? Abraham wasn't really believing that his 90-year-old wife would spontaneously one morning just give birth or get pregnant. He was believing God who'd promised him a son. 
Moses wasn't trusting that the pharaoh of Egypt, a despot, would wake up one morning and spontaneously, in the worst economic decision in history, give away his entire slave labor force. Just off you go, guys. He was trusting that God would do what he'd said he would. The man who brought his afflicted, suffering little boy, if we fast forward to the New Testament, to Jesus, wasn't confident each day as he woke up that today would be different. Today's the day, guys. As, as uh, someone who's lived in, as part of a family where there's been an awful lot of sickness, that's not how it works. If this guy had ever had hope, it had been worn out of him a long time ago. But he'd heard about Jesus, and something sparked in him, this glimmer of hope, of belief. I know I can't do anything, but maybe, just maybe, he can. I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. And what about this morning? Do we think that if, if, if the band do just about a good enough job and if this isn't an awful talk, then actually God might show up and some amazing things will happen? Or is it about his presence? And all the rest of it is just the donkey that he rides in on. In the end, our faith is simply who we believe he is. As with every other relationship, who we believe someone really is deep down determines how much we trust them. What do you think he's really like? What do you expect from him? Whatever the answer to that question is, that is our faith. So why does what we think about him uh, and how much we trust him matter so much to him? Hebrews uh, 11.6 tells us this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The end of that verse reads like this, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it is impossible to please God unless, A, we believe that he's actually there, which I think is, makes complete sense, doesn't it? I wouldn't be very pleased if my kids didn't even believe I existed. That's not very high bar stuff, is it? But the second thing goes beyond just believing that he might exist. And tells us what he wants us to believe he's like. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Our Father in heaven wants us to believe that if we make any effort to get to know him, he'll give us what we're after. Because that's the type of person he is. Because he's good and he loves us and he's our dad. Imagine having a child, which for some of you will be quite easy, uh, because you've got them. But I haven't, so engage in a little bit of make-believe with me. And uh, kids are always asking for stuff, aren't they? You know, they're always like, oh, what's for dinner? What's for dessert? Can I have an ice cream? Can I have a chocolate? Can I... And the answer isn't always yes. But, um, well, at least not on their timescales, hopefully. But kids who were raised in, in loving families, and I realise not everyone is, but kids who were raised in loving families often have this amazing ability not to let the knocks keep them back, don't they? Didn't get ice cream yesterday. I'm coming, coming for it again today, baby. Coming again today. That was my experience. I, I took a lot of knocks because mum was quite on it with that stuff. Do you know that line that mums and dads chuck out that's like, Matthew, you'll ruin your dinner. You'll ruin your dinner. He's like, do you even know me? It's a lie. Mum, it's a lie. And you don't get to eat what you want to eat because apparently it'll ruin your dinner. I was like, it's just so hard to take. Uh, but... Even though I was very annoyed at times and completely disagreed with that, I never inferred from that that my mum and dad didn't love me enough to feed me. 
although they didn't want me to have nice things. In fact, I knew they loved me. And because I knew they loved me, I knew that I would get what I needed. And sometimes I'd even get stuff that I definitely didn't need. If anyone can remember how far, how far a pound used to go in the uh, corner shop. Get a lot of action back in the day out of a quid. How we ask and how regularly we ask points to our beliefs about the one that we ask. I wonder if there are areas of your life where if you're honest, you've not believed God is going to do very much. In fact, maybe you've stopped asking altogether. He longs to stir that little spark of belief, of confidence, not in, not in you, in him. For example, the Bible speaks about the freedom that Jesus offers us, doesn't it? But do we really expect to live free? Or are there areas uh, where if we're honest, we've kind of settled? I think that's about as far as we can go. But the Bible speaks of living a life that is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, by love and joy and peace and patience. Is that always our experience? I'll probably put my hand up and say no. But is there something in that list that you want? But again, you're not really even hoping for anymore. The Bible tells us, Jesus' invite to all who listen, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. But is he our go-to for rest, or are there quite a lot of pit stops before we get to Jesus? The most common command in the whole Bible is, is do not fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that we're given a spirit, the Holy Spirit, that does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. But does that sometimes feel more like head knowledge than lived belief? Jesus and those who wrote about him are just spilling with all the implications of what it means to come into relationship and believe in the real living Jesus. He longs for, he loves our belief that he really is as good as he says he is. Because what we don't believe he's like, we won't believe he'll do. And if we don't really believe he loves us enough to keep his promises to us, we're not going to ask. And if we're not going to ask, then we're not going to receive nearly as much as he'd like to give us. And walk in love and break through. And he longs for us to do that. So the third thing, uh, back to our passage in Mark 6, was the question, well, what is it that impairs faith? If it is so important to him what we believe about him, which does make complete sense to me. But if it matters, what is it that's impairing him here? What stops us from believing that he is our good father and he does want the kingdom to come and he does want to transform our lives? And if you look at Jesus' big return home, at first they're amazed, but then they start asking questions. This is from verse 2 in chapter 6 in Mark again. Where did this man get these things? They asked, what's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And as I've been mulling it over, what I think's at the heart of all of those questions that they start chucking out is, but we know him. When other people encountered Jesus and it just sparked belief in that, that, that anything was possible in Nazareth, there wasn't really any space for belief because they already had him figured out. Could it be in church that, that we risk doing the same? It's tempting for me to think, well, I wouldn't miss Jesus. I wouldn't miss what he wants to do. But let's think this through. How does Jesus come to us? 
He's not just going to walk through that door, is he? Or if you're listening online, he's not just going to you know, knock on your front door and end up having a tea with you physically. How will he turn up in our lives if we only have eyes to see and ears to hear? And the answer most of the time is that just in Nazareth, he turns up looking so familiar that we could miss him. He turns up through the words and, and the prayers and the kindness of others, people just like us. As someone prays for you perhaps here at the front of church or you're worshipping and you just feel that sense that he's here. Maybe through someone at small group. Or to you, literally to you, as perhaps you read the Bible and that verse you've read before, but suddenly it jumps off the page and it captures your heart. Or, or you feel that nudge to call someone that you haven't even thought of for ages. And when you do call them, you realize that's exactly what you needed to do. Or, or you make space and you sit still before him and you just feel his peace come. So often he turns up just like he did all those years ago in Nazareth in a guise that is so everyday and familiar. Have you ever noticed how... Um, I think we, we expect more and have more faith and belief and confidence the less ordinary and everyday a situation is. I know some of you here will have been to Christian conferences that I have. And if, if I'm at a Christian conference, it's kind of like, I've, I've got a bit extra. Anything might happen. But if I'm just a small group, well, I guess you never know. But it doesn't feel quite the same. Or, or how about if, if a visiting speaker has come and they've just delivered this amazing message and you think, and then they come and pray for you and you think, oh, this is it, Lord. <laughs> Versus when like your mate who's sitting next to you puts a hand on your shoulder, like, can I pray for you? And you think, yeah, why not? <laughs> is that just me? I'm caricaturing it a bit. Sorry if anyone's ever prayed for me. Um, <laughs> I'm well done if you persevered. What we know about Jesus, what we really believe in our guts if we're honest, is mixed through with an awful lot of experience and it's not always helpful. In Nazareth, they're thinking Jesus. But he never did anything before. Have you ever found yourself thinking something similar about an issue that you've prayed about or been hoping for? Sometimes our experiences, the good and the bad, color the way we really believe Jesus is and what we think he's capable of doing or perhaps willing to do. I've had ulcerative colitis, a medical condition for 13 years, uh, my little sister has got it. My other sister's got other stuff. Um, and I've lost count of the amount of A&E trips and the hospital visits and the different drug concoctions. I'm on quite a good combination at the moment. So, you know, you get really ill and then you're a bit better and then you're quite well and you're a bit ill. And at the moment, I'm doing pretty well. It's just one of those things you deal with, I guess, because there's not a cure. And, and I've had prayer. I've had loads of prayer. And I've still got colitis. Four toilet trips this morning before this, friends. <laughs> That's colitis for you. So annoying. Has that coloured my view of Jesus and what he can do? I've realised over these last month, it's not that I wanted it to, but it definitely has. I'm the kid who disappointed at drawing a blank so many times I stopped looking to my father and asking for food. And sometimes not just for me, but for other people as well. But I don't want how I think of or believe in Jesus to be anchored in my pain. I want it to be anchored in who he actually is. And you know what? Not only does Jesus come to us wearing the most familiar faces, yours, mine, in this book. He does it in spite of all our mess. And again, I think that can be what rules us out or we rule ourselves out over. 
How many times have I expected less from God or gotten lost down a cul-de-sac of overthinking because I know that the person praying for me hasn't got their life together? As though it was really about them anyway. Or doubted that thing that I think God's whispering to me because, I mean, I can't, I can't even reliably get up for the alarm first time without clicking snooze. So what are the chances God wants to do anything through me? We can, if we're not careful, miss and keep missing the actual alive and kicking Jesus and what he's wanting to do and how he's wanting to encounter us and change us and free us because we're so focused on our, our insufficiencies, our sin, our past experiences. To quote John Wimber, it's not about us. It is about him. What do you believe about him? So the fourth question, the last one, the crunch one really is, so what do we do? How do we believe in Jesus more than we already do? How do we know and trust him more? How do we overcome our familiarity from, from years of Sundays for some of us or reading the Bible or whatever it might be? Well, I want to start with a little bit of good news. Hebrews 12 verses 1 to 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let, off, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. He's the pioneer and he's the perfecter of our faith. He personally kickstarts belief and he helps all along the way. And in the words of Wimber, again, it is not about us. And as a chronic overthinker, that is such good news. That it is about him more than it's about me. But there are just a couple of two really practical things that I think we can do that are really clearly mandated in the Bible if we want to grow in this area. I want you to imagine you're in Nazareth the day that Jesus leaves. And most people are glad to see the back of him, a troublemaker. But you stood there watching his back as he, as he disappears with his followers. And you can't shake the feeling that you've missed out on life, on breakthrough. One of those mighty works was for you. You wanted it and you didn't get it. What do you do? Here's the first. Romans ten seventeen says this. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. Faith comes from hearing hearing about Jesus. If you want to know and trust and think right about God, we have to hear Jesus, hear about him. We find the whole truth about God in Jesus. We've got to hear the message. We've got to have exposure to Jesus. We've got to fill our minds with him. We've got to fill our hearts with him. We have to hear him. We have to see him. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, right? Fixing our eyes. So back then, the thing that you would have done if you weren't satisfied, was you'd just run after him. Be like, Jesus, wait, I'm coming. People were doing that all the time and he never turned anyone away. The people who saw the stuff were the people who were around him. Earlier I mentioned that amazing story where Peter, one of Jesus' followers, said to the beggar who'd never walked in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Man, Peter believed in Jesus, didn't he? Imagine saying that to someone. Just walk. That's the prayer. That's belief. But then Peter had been around and listening to Jesus for a long time. That didn't just happen overnight. He'd heard and he'd seen and he knew Jesus now. We can't take our eyes. So, so we can't take off after Jesus physically anymore. But the essence is basically the same. 
We've got to be around him. We've got to be hearing his story. We need to be in the Bible. We've got to be reading about him. And maybe you're not much of a reader. Well, then listen to him. Get the uh, Bible app, the NIV UK version. David Suchet narrates it. Phenomenal. And there's no annoying music over it in the background. It really winds me up. David Suchet, man. It's quality. So if you're not a reader, just listen. And maybe you're like, well, I read it or I listen to it, but a lot of it doesn't really go in. Well, just pick a story. Pick a couple of verses that speak about Jesus and speak life to you in your situation and just come back to them again and again and again and again. You don't need lots. The story, I love this phrase, the story you live in is the story you live out. So I guess the question is, what story are we living in? What do we believe about Jesus? We need to know him, King Jesus. What are we hearing? What are our eyes fixed on? And then the second thing that we can really practically do is this. We have to, have to, have to, have to, have to use what we've got. Okay, look at Peter who healed the lame beggar. That wasn't Peter's first time. That's not how he started. I wish it was. I wish I could first time be like, bam, and it would just work. Sadly, I've got a lot more of the other stories where it doesn't work as well. But Jesus had sent Peter out before to do this healing and, and deliverance stuff, and it didn't always work for him either. Sometimes he got egg on his face. When Jesus delivered that little boy, the other story I talked about earlier on, who was having seizures, the whole reason Jesus was even needed was Peter had already tried, and it just didn't work. That's embarrassing, isn't it? You come to Jesus, but Jesus isn't there, so you get his followers, and they can't do anything. He'd caught it wrong. You don't get the story of the lame beggar in Acts without all the tries and the successes and the failures that preceded it. Thank goodness Peter kept going. If we want to grow in faith and belief, we have to persevere. We have to keep going back. It looks like something. It takes us somewhere. To that neighbor who you know is ill and you've almost prayed for quite a few times, but you never quite got around to it. To that friend in small group who you think you might have a word from God from, but you're not quite sure and it does sound a bit silly, so maybe not. To that work colleague who you think, there's just something awry there. I need to have a chat with them and see what God does with that. But again, is that a bit awkward? You don't really know them that well. Or maybe down to the front here to ask Jesus for breakthrough for the first time. Or maybe it's not the first time. Maybe it's just the first time in a long time. It isn't always easy to believe Jesus. Again, think about that dad in Mark 9. Not only did he have to track down Jesus with a, with a child who couldn't speak and might have a fit at any point, he had to take the biggest risk of all, which is hoping. Because if you hope, you might be disappointed. Putting our belief into practice often isn't that easy. And not only that, it might not work. It didn't work every time for Peter. I started by talking about the kingdom and how the kingdom comes. And Jesus said, yeah, it is coming. And every time you know, we step out in obedience and we dare to believe just a little bit, it comes a bit more. But until he returns, we're not going to see it in its fullness. That's our experience. There are wonderful, godly men and women who are struggling, waiting for healing or against addictions or for breakthrough. And they haven't seen it yet. I mean, I'm 13 years into this colitis thing, and it's annoying. John Wimber, our founder, who is an amazing man, like he saw so many people healed. 
So much breakthrough. And he was chronically ill for a lot of his latter years and died of health complications at 63. I don't know why. Like we could fill another talk with all the theological reasons, but why specifically, John? I don't know. I was always prepping this talk. I was actually on the phone because it was all on my mind. So I was like, well, I've got to give it a go if I'm going to preach about giving it a go. And I was on the phone to a member of our kids team who had tendonitis on her wrist. She had a physio appointment booked for two days' time. She couldn't bend it at all. And uh, I thought, well, if it's not about me, might as well pray in Jesus' name. And I did, and it, and it got loads better. At the time, she thought it was completely better. She went to see the physio two days later, um, and he said, yeah, it's perfect, strong. Actually, since, every now and then she gets this little niggle, but essentially it's, it's so what we'll call that like a mainly healing? I don't, know, I don't know what you do with that. But it got a lot better. And then we were, we were chatting to someone at small group when we were talking about this stuff, and a load of our group prayed for someone in our small group, and they hadn't run for like a couple of years or something since before lockdown. They really used to run quite a lot, but they just had this knee problem, and we prayed, and fine. She's been running since. She did admit not as often as she should, but it's not because of the knee. It's just because, you know, it's running, isn't it? And then I prayed for another friend that same week who was struggling with something. And same prayer, in Jesus' name, nothing happened. What was the difference? We got like an 80%er, 100%er, a zero. Like, was my faith? It would, I, I, I honestly don't know. But what I do know is that if I or my group hadn't given it a shot and prayed in Jesus' name, then there'd still be at least a couple of people struggling who didn't need to be. Because Jesus was there to do something. That little boy's dad had to be willing to take the risk. He said, I believe, help me in my unbelief. What was the man really doing? What was he really saying? He was basically just admitting, if my son gets well, it has absolutely nothing to do with me. And everything to do with Jesus. He's the one that I believe could do something. When Peter healed the lame beggar, you know, it's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed this man. How much faith did Peter have? I don't know. But perhaps the better way of saying it for Peter and for that boy's dad is they had enough to do something about it. They had enough to give it a go. God wants, would love us to believe that he is as good as he says he is. So one, we need to be hearing Jesus a lot. Faith comes by hearing and seeing who he is and what he's like. And two, we need to be getting out there on the ice, risking disappointment. Jesus, I'll try, but I know I'm not the hero of this story. You are. And you can do anything, even through me. I believe there are things Jesus wants to do literally this morning, this week in us. Mighty works, gentle works, encouraging, healing, for sure. Are we willing to listen for him? And are we willing to risk believing? Guys, would you stand with me? Steph, you're going to join me, aren't you? If, if um, <sighs> we're just going to make some space, wait a little bit, and I absolutely believe Jesus wants to touch and heal and move among us this morning. So if you want to close your eyes, whatever's most, most comfortable for you. Jesus, I just pray over all of us right now that you would come. 
We've heard about you this morning. <laughs> you are the miracle worker. You are the way maker. You can do anything. And in any corner of our hearts where we've just stopped believing that. Stop believing that you're for us and you love us and you're here. Would you wake us up, stir belief in you again? Come, Holy Spirit. And in the tension, we just come before you. Come before your sovereignty, God. Submit to your sovereignty. Trust in your sovereignty, knowing that none of this depends on us. Thank you that you are powerful, almighty God. And it's you we come before, it's you we submit to. So we just consciously submit to your sovereignty now. And we just wait on you. Come, Holy Spirit. I think there are a few people here who, as I was speaking, and even now, there was just a wrestle going on in your heart and in your head. Like, I can't... I can't go there again. I can't hope again. If that's all you can bring, he'll take even that. And I think there's some people for whom it's not, it's not physical healing, it's... It's an area of, of your life that it just fills you with shame. And you're like, I don't know if I'll ever get victory in that area. And I just think he wants to whisper into that space, like, it, I will help you. I can do this. If you're in a, a small group in the life of the church, I'd love you to come and um, pray for these guys. We don't want to leave them waiting too long. Mm. Yeah. it could be also that there's some of you that are just desperate for um, a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit or perhaps to, to experience the Holy Spirit for the first time mm. you've heard about it you've seen it you've seen it happen to other people or you've heard them share about it and you just long for that you long for your own experience of encountering the Holy Spirit. Mm. So if there is, you know, anyone that is longing for prayer, whatever it's about, physical healing, emotional healing, mental healing, spiritual healing, mm. whatever it might be, or just to encounter the Holy Spirit again, just come. And it might be that we haven't got quite enough people to pray, but that's fine because we'll just move around and we'll make sure that everyone is, is prayed for. Mm. So if you're waiting, don't worry. We'll make sure that someone comes and prays with you. Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.